Welcome to the Know God Podcast, our weekly discussion with Dr. Jeff Colburn, where we learn about Jesus and how we can develop a relationship with God. Jeff earned his PhD in Bible exposition and is the founder of the Safe Harbor Digital Community, an online space where all are welcome to explore God. I am your co-host, Angela, and I cannot wait to get to today's discussion. For this episode, we will be discussing the who Jesus claimed to be. Jeff, we received a few questions around the person of Jesus. And one of our audience members asked about the multiple in quotes, I am statements he made. Another asked if Jesus's divinity is a historic fact or just a matter of faith. Well, Angela, I think before we answer those questions, we really need to understand who Jesus claimed to be and what it meant to his followers. And to understand that, we have to look at the time leading up to Jesus. Well, that sounds like a lot to cover. Um, So let's uh, have this conversation over a couple of episodes. So for this episode, why don't we focus on who Jesus claimed to be and what it meant to his followers? Sure, that sounds good. Let's start with the time leading up to Jesus. This is known as the second, Second Temple period. It covered a time between the Jews' return from Babylon in 586 B.C. to the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 A.D. A majority of this time was not covered in the Bible. The Old Testament ends with Malachi. Israel is ruled by Persia. Then the New Testament begins with Matthew, and Israel is ruled by Rome. So between these two books, it's known as the intertestamental period. It begins around 420 B.C., and it goes until the start of the first century. It's known as the 400 silent years since there's no prophet between Malachi and the arrival of Jesus. But a lot happens between the span of time. You have Alexander the Great. He defeats the Persians and he conquers that region. And then you have Hellenization where the Greek culture and language is imposed upon those people. And then you have the rise and fall of the Hasmonean dynasty. And that had a lot of influence on the Jewish thought at the time. The language shift from Hebrew to Aramaic and Greek. And then, that same time period, you had the rise of the different Jewish sects. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Jeff, if it isn't in the Bible, how do we know what happened during that time? Well, there's several sources from this period, and then often referred to as intertestamental writings. Uh, This includes the Pseudepigraphia and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, As you know, I I spent a lot of time studying this period for my dissertation. I I really enjoyed it, and believe me, it helped me to better understand who Jesus is and the reason for his coming. So why is it so important to understand the time before Jesus? Well, during this time, many Jews believe they were still living in exile, even though they were permitted to return to, to Judah, and the temple had been rebuilt, but they didn't believe God's presence had returned as Ezekiel had foretold. So they're awaiting God's promise to return and restore Israel. And after the Hasmonean dynasty, the Jews returned to the Old Testament prophecies. They started to reinterpret, and they understood that God's return would be through one of his anointed agents. And this agent was known as the Messiah. And during this time, you had different messianic expectations develop. Well, that, that is interesting. Can you explain what these messianic expectations were? Well, they expected a king from the line of David. He was to be anointed by God and restore Israel. 
some expected an earthly king, much in, like in the Psalm of Solomon, uh, while others are expecting a divine and pre-existent being, like we read in First Enoch and 4 Ezra. And then the Dead Sea Scrolls show us that some expected two messiahs. There was a king, known as the Messiah of Israel, and one was to be a priest, known as the Messiah of Aaron. So it sounds like there were a lot of different ideas about who the Messiah would be. How do we know which one was correct? Well, first Enoch and four Ezra associated the Messiah with the Son of Man from Daniel 7. And then first Enoch also connected the Son of Man with Isaiah's suffering servant. And we read in Isaiah that the suffering servant was the one to come and be a ransom for the many. So during the Second Temple period, they start, during their reinterpretation of the prophecies, they started to understand that, that, that the Davidic king, the son of man, and the suffering servant were to be one. So is there a clear idea for who the, mess, the Messiah would be? Well, some scholars attempt to identify common threads shared amongst the expectations. Uh, one is the Messiah would be an agent of God during the end days. He was going to liberate Israel from his enemies. And the Messiah was to sit the throne and reign over Israel. And he was going to represent Israel before God. So if Jesus' disciples knew of these messianic expectations, what did they understand him to be before his resurrection? Well, his disciples understood him to be the awaited Messiah. We read early on in the Gospels, Andrew tells his brother Peter that they have found the Messiah. And then when Jesus asks... Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ, or you are the Messiah. And Jeff, you mentioned in our previous episode on the resurrection of Jesus that his disciples doubted him after he had been crucified, and many had returned to their previous lives. If they believed he was the Messiah during his three-year ministry, why did they stop when he was killed? Well, Angela, they had a hard time with what he was saying. It went against everything they wanted from Messiah. They were looking to him to lead a revolt against Rome. They had no idea of the concept of inaugurated eschatology. That is not a term most people are familiar with. Can you explain what that is? Oh, sure. Uh, Eschatology focuses on the end times or the last days. So the concept of an inaugurated eschatology was God's eschatological promises being started but not yet completed. Now, the inauguration was through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and the completion would be through his return. And this concept was not new. The Essenes believed that God's plan of redemption had started with the formation of this sect. However, most Jews believed once the Messiah arrived, he was going to defeat the enemies and liberate Israel, and and they certainly weren't expecting him to die. So Jesus' followers believed Jesus as the Messiah was going to defeat Rome and restore Israel? Oh, absolutely. Uh, So much so that Peter confronts Jesus when Jesus tells him that he's going to be killed. We read in Matthew 16, 22, Peter says, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So what Peter missed or, or didn't understand is the part after being killed. Uh, that Jesus would be raised up on the third day. And although Jesus told them what was going to happen, they continued to believe he's going to liberate Israel as they were traveling to Jerusalem. They just refused to believe he was walking to his death. So Jesus says in Luke 9.44, 
Let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And then Luke 9.45, we read right after that. Tell us. It just tells us that they didn't understand the statement, that it was concealed from them. Hmm. Jeff, it seems the disciples got it wrong. Didn't Jesus match any of the messianic expectations? Uh, Angela, his disciples didn't get it wrong. Uh, the, the titles Jesus claimed were all well-known and part of the messianic expectations. Nothing said or identified was new. They were just thinking too small. And we'll go into that more later. Uh, we just know, even though the messianic expectations differed, they were all correct. And we also know that Jesus met all these expectations. Okay, Jeff, from what you shared... It seems that the Jews were expecting different things. Some expected an earthly king, much like the Israelite kings of the past. And others were expecting a divine being to restore Israel. How did Jesus meet all these expectations? Well, Angela, let's start with the Son of Man, since that's the title Jesus uses the most. It appears 82 times in the Gospels. And he used this title referred to three different categories. Uh, the first was his, his current role. Uh, many Christians know this as the already. And this is his earthly ministry where he has authority over sin, sickness, and nature. Right? Mark 2.10, he says, But so you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, the only person to have authority to forgive sins was God. And the Jews understood this. And anybody who claimed otherwise... Was considered, it was considered blasphemy, as we read in Mark 2.7. The scribes accused him of blasphemy as only God had authority to forgive sins. In the second category, Jesus relates his title with Isaiah's suffering servant. He describes how the Son of Man will suffer, die, and rise again. Mark 8.3.1. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He states this again to his disciples in Mark 9.31. So a reading of Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12 provides a description of the suffering servant, and he will suffer, be rejected, killed, and then be raised. And then the third category, Jesus referring to his future role. And Christians refer to this as the not yet. And this is where Jesus describes the Son of Man coming in his eschatological glory to sit on the throne as judge. Matthew thirteen forty one to 43 The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of the kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as a sun in the kingdom of their father. Now Jesus is clearly talking about the eschatological judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous. And then in Matthew nineteen twenty eight. Jesus tells his disciples that the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. And then in Mark 14.62, Jesus tells the high priest that he will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now Jesus is clearly alluding to Daniel 7. So from this evidence, we know that Jesus is the expected Son of Man, as it had been foretold by Daniel, 1st Enoch, and 4 Ezra. He's that divine, pre-existing being who will serve as God's agent to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. Jeff, you shared how Jesus described the Son of Man suffering and dying. 
How do we know he's referring to the suffering servant from Isaiah? Well, early in Jesus's ministry, he reads Isaiah 61, and he tells the audience that the scripture had been fulfilled in their hearing. Luke 4, 18, 21, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So he's identifying with the suffering servant, and he understood this to be his mission. And it happens again. John the Baptist sends his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one to come? And again, he responds with Isaiah 61. And John the Baptist would have understood this would have understood this response. And then Jesus goes further. He expresses Isaiah's concept of substitutionary atonement when he speaks of his blood being poured out for the forgiveness of sin for the many. Matthew 26 to 28. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. And he makes similar statements across all three synoptic gospels. So from this, we know Jesus is claiming to be the suffering servant from Isaiah. Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man and the Suffering Servant, but what weren't the Jews expecting a king from the line of David to restore Israel? Well, Jesus' central message was a kingdom of God. And he tells his disciples that they will join him when the Son of Man sits on the throne. In Matthew nineteen twenty eight, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall sit upon twelve thrones. And it gives a similar account in Luke 22, 28-29. He tells them that his father granted him a kingdom, and they're going to join him at his table. And then the following verse, he, again, he makes a reference to them sitting on the twelve thrones. His disciples understood him to be king. And if that's not enough, then Jesus' fulfillment of Zechariah 9-9 just demonstrates further his claim to kingship. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. This is known as the triumphal entry, and the crowd celebrated as Jesus returned to Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey. And this account is given in all four Gospels. Wow, Jeff, I can't, I, excuse me, I get that Jesus claimed to be king. How does that make him a king in the line of David? Angela, the gospel authors make it clear that Jesus was from the line of David. Matthew and Luke both provide genealogies that demonstrate that Jesus is a descendant of David. Now, these were important at that time, and it would have been able to trace Jesus back to David. And the Jews also understood him to be the son of David. Mark 10, 47-48, Bartimaeus refers to Jesus as the son of David. And then in Matthew 12, 22-23, after Jesus heals the demon-possessed mute, the crowd asks, Can this be the son of David? What about the Messiah of Aaron you mentioned earlier? Wasn't the Messiah to be a priest? Well, in Luke twenty forty-one to 44 Jesus asks the scribes how the Messiah could be the son of David if David refers to him as Lord in Psalm 110. Now, Jesus' reference to Psalm 110 might be uh, be alluding to the fact that the exalted one to the throne would also be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
you know, Jesus may not state it directly, but he's claiming both a royal and a priestly role. Now, the authors who believe in two separate messiahs, uh, we see that these two roles are actually being fulfilled by Jesus. And the author of Booker of Hebrews understood this. He quotes Psalm 110 as he defined Jesus as the perfect high priest. Okay, Jeff, besides the messianic expectations, did Jesus claim anything else? Uh, absolutely. Uh, there, there were a few other things Jesus claimed that may have gone beyond what the Jews were expecting. Uh, he often referred to himself as a son, and he spoke of God as his father. So he's obviously identifying with God. Uh, you know, they were expecting a divine being. However, he was claiming something greater than that. And then when he spoke, uh, most prophets, when they, when, they, when they spoke, they prefaced everything with, thus says the Lord. Jesus was different. He said everything with, truly I say to you, or I say to you. He is speaking as the authority. Previously, the, the prophets were speaking, God was the authority. But now Jesus is speaking as he is the one with authority. And we see this in Mark 1, 22, where the people could see what his authority, they, they, they say, they were amazed at his teaching. Well, he was teaching them as one having authority. And then Jesus also referred to himself as I am. So when Jesus confronted in John 8, he says, before Abraham, I am. Now, this is a name God gives Moses when Moses asks, whom should I say sent me? In Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am, and said, thus shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So Jesus is claiming pre-existence and divinity in the statement. Now, some scholars might argue that's not what he's doing here. However, we just have to look at the Jews' reaction. So right after the statement, they pick up stones to throw at him. They understood what he was claiming, and they were intending to stone him for blasphemy. And if that statement wasn't clear enough, two chapters later, Jesus says, He and the Father are one. And again, the Jews pick up stones to the, you know, they pick up the stones. Uh, so, but this time Jesus asks them, why do you intend to stone me? And their response is blasphemy, since he's claiming that he's making himself out to be God. So there's no confusion here. There can't be any doubt that Jesus was claiming divinity. And the Jews understood this, and they wanted to put him to death for it. Well, from all that Jesus said, there doesn't seem to be any reason to doubt that he claimed to be the, be the Messiah. Angela, no, he was clearly claiming to be the Messiah. And if there's any doubt, you just have to look at John four twenty six. Jesus tells the Samaritan woman at the well that he is the Messiah. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Jeff, from what you shared, it seems Jesus claimed to have fulfilled all the messianic expectations. Yet weren't the Jews awaiting the restoration of Israel and the return of God's presence to the temple? From what we know, Jesus did not fulfill these expectations. When he was crucified and raised, Israel remained under Roman rule. And the temple was destroyed 40 years later, or yeah, after his crucifixion. So why did his disciples continue to believe he was the Messiah? It seems that he did not do what he was prophesied. Well, Angela, 
Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. Unfortunately, the Jews had misinterpreted them. As I mentioned before, even his disciples prior to the resurrection were, resurrection were thinking too small. The Jews' emphasis was on what they wanted. And they wanted independence from foreign oppression. And this is what caused that misinterpretation. They had experienced a taste of independence during the Hasmonean dynasty, and they wanted it back. Plus, there was a heavy emphasis on military action, because that's what worked in the past. So the prophecies foretold of a Messiah defeating the enemy. So Jesus just didn't defeat the enemy that they were expecting. He defeated the enemy behind the Roman Empire. He defeated death. And with the defeat of death, humans were free from its power and from the bondage of sin. This was a greater victory than the defeat of Rome. Humans now had the power through Christ to be transformed and overcome sin. And they were no longer subject to death. So Jesus defeated the enemy, just not the enemy the Jews expected. But what about the temple? Wasn't God's presence supposed to return? Well, let's talk about the temple. Uh, The Jews considered the temple to be the intersection between heaven and earth. This is where God resided with his people, and and this was his presence on earth. Uh, And before the temple, you had the Garden of Eden, and then the tabernacle. But God did return. It's just not how the Jews expected. So rather than returning to the temple, God returned in the person of Jesus. So no longer did people have to repeatedly travel to the temple to be in God's presence and to provide offerings to atone for their sins. And Jesus explained this to the Samaritan woman. In John 4.21, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in the mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Jesus is God's presence on earth. He made the final and everlasting offering to atone for our sins, and his presence is in every believer through the Holy Spirit. Going to the temple is no longer required to be in God's presence. Jeff, we know that there are some believing Jews. However, today, the majority of the church is made up of non-Jews. What does Jesus' claims mean for them? Well, we know in the last command, Jesus, you know, the last command Jesus gave to his disciples was to go out and be witnesses to all nations. Acts 1, 7 to 8, Jesus says, You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Jesus is commanding his disciples to be witnesses to both Jews and Gentiles. And and Gentiles was just a reference to non-Jews at the time. And since Jesus had inaugurated the end times, you know, we remember the concept inaugurated eschatology, it had been foretold during the eschatology that the Gentile nations would come to God. Isaiah 49, 6. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now, Paul understood this to be the base of his, of his mission to the Gentiles. It was also the fulfillment of the second part of God's promise to Abraham, where God promised that the people of the world would be blessed through Abraham. Peter, Paul, and the other Jewish Christians witnessed the Holy Spirit fall upon Gentiles before they converted to Judaism. And they understood these non-Jewish believers to be the foretold eschatological Gentiles. And that just meant the Gentiles that would come to God at the end. And Acts 15 describes the Jerusalem Council where it was decided that believing Gentiles may be admitted to the church without first converting to Judaism. And this was known as Gentile inclusion. So if you, you know, you're reading a letter 
in Romans by Paul, he tells us that believing Gentiles are the wild branches granted, you know, grafted to the vine. So we become, as Gentiles, as non, uh, you know, as non-Jews, we become adopted children of God. Jeff, thank you for sharing all this with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I hope this gives everyone a better understanding of who Jesus claimed to be and what it meant to his followers. Well, it certainly helped me. I hope everyone enjoyed this conversation about who Jesus claimed to be. Next week, we will continue this conversation and address our audience's questions. What were the multiple I am statements and what did they mean? And is Jesus's divinity a historic fact or a matter of faith? Thank you, everyone, for being part of the Know God podcast. Please join us every Monday as we learn more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If you found this episode helpful, please leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. Also, please join the Safe Harbor community at digitalsafeharbor.com, a safe online space where you can ask questions, share your experiences and struggles, and engage in honest conversation. Until next week, have a great day and God bless.